Amen, and thank you for uh, that theological reminder of who is on the throne here this morning. Good morning. Welcome to Bethel Church today. And uh, before I get into my message, I want to just talk to the church family for a moment. You know, we're coming off of Easter weekend, and uh, this was a tremendous weekend for our church. And uh, I've got some kudos that I want to uh, spread around here. Uh, first of all, one of the big One of the ways that this went so well was the way that you responded to some of the requests that we made uh, to you. And uh, we had, if you remember, we had five services on Easter. And in the weeks coming up to it, we said to you, we said, if there is any way that you can come, especially to the Saturday night services, would you do it? It'd be a huge help to us and it helped manage the whole thing. And so we didn't know if anybody would uh, do it or not. And... Uh, last Saturday night, we had almost 2,000 of you that came to the Saturday night services, which was a huge help on, uh, for Sunday morning and just being able to manage all of that. And it went great. It came off really without a hitch. And, uh, so that was wonderful. Thank you so very much for doing that. And I want to tell you one reason that I love that so much. It's because, uh, it indicates to me a kingdom mentality, where I am willing to be personally inconvenienced for the sake of Jesus and for what's going to help uh, the kingdom of God and the work of the gospel and the the ministry of of, uh, the word. And so I just was so happy uh, to see that and want to let you know how great I think that it is. I also want to say kudos to so many people who served in so many ways. We had Tons of volunteers who were here, multiple services, multiple, uh, you know, Saturday and Sunday and, and children's workers and we had tech crew and we had hospitality people and, uh, music and worship people and all the rest just put in so much effort. I can't remember really anything that we have worked harder on and more people have kind of come together, uh, to do and it was just Wonderful. So on behalf of the, uh, the pastors and the staff and the elders, we just want to say thank you to you. You did a great job. It was a great weekend. We celebrated a risen king. And I think that we ought to just sort of say praise the Lord for a great weekend. <laughs> Amen. Finding faith in troubled times. This is the subject of a two-part series. This is the first of the two. And you might look at this really as one, one long message with a halftime uh, in there. And it's going to feel a little bit like that, like, okay, we're just going to have a seven-day halftime in between this weekend and next. Uh, today, we're going to spend a little more time kind of understanding troubled times. And next week, will be more how to deal with them and, and a little more practical a little more practical next weekend. Why are we doing the series? The answer is obvious, isn't it? We are living in uniquely challenging times. It's obvious that there are people that are asking questions now, these days, that maybe two or three years ago they weren't asking or even really caring about. Questions like, is my job safe? How will I find a job? Where did my invested money go? Is there anywhere safe to put it? What does the future hold? Is the government in control or not? 
And how can I battle this anxiety that I feel towards the future? And you know, whenever people are asking questions, the church needs to be there with God's answers, the answers of God's word, with the hope that asking kind of people will be led to the truth in the midst of the crisis because that is, that is what, that is the gospel. It is, it is a message of, it is a message of hope. So we are in troubled times. Here's the big news. We are in a recession. We are in a recession. Definition of a recession. An economic downturn. An economic downturn. Technically, it is two consecutive quarters of negative growth in the gross domestic product. Now, aren't you impressed that I said it like that so smoothly? Practice that. But that is, uh, that is technically what a recession is all about. And these happen on a cyclical basis. This is uh, the second one uh, in this decade. If you're 30 years old, you've been through four of them. This is the fourth. So these are not, they shouldn't be surprising to us. Uh, they happen on a fairly regular basis. And the principle is what goes up must come down. Now, in the midst of up, we think it will always go up. It'll always be this way. And then when it goes down, we're like shocked. What? No way. And yet we look at history and we say, okay, this is the way that it, this is the way that it is. This happens all the time. And this also is not the first, uh, recession that has also had with it revelations of, uh, scams and fraud and all kinds of nefarious activity that was going on behind the scenes to make the, uh, what we thought was an expansion take place. I came across a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, who pastored in England over a hundred years ago. Uh, and in fact, this, this sermon is from January 10th, 1869. See if this sounds familiar to you. This is what he said. During the last two years, some of the most notable commercial reputations have been hopelessly destroyed. Men in the great world of trade who were trusted for hundreds of thousands of pounds, England, okay, so pounds, around whose characters there hovered no cloud of suspicion, nor even the shadow of a doubt, have proved themselves reckless of honesty and devoid of principle. The fiery trial has been too much for the wood, hay, and stubble of many a gigantic firm. Houses of business which seem to be founded upon a rock and to stand as fast as the commonwealth of England itself have been shaken to their foundations and have been, have caved in with a tremendous crash. On all sides, we see the wrecks of great reputations and colossal fortunes. There is a wailing in the palaces of sham and desolation in the halls of pretense. Bubbles are bursting. Windbags are collapsing. Paint is cracking. Guilt is peeling off. Probably we have more of this to come. More revelations still to be made of apparent wealth, which covered insolvency as a rich paper may cover a mud wall. Crafty schemes which duped the public with profits never made and tempted them to advance to deeper speculations, even as the mirage of the desert mocks the traveler. We have seen in the public prints, month after month, fresh discoveries of the modes of financing adopted by the villainy of this present age to accomplish robbery respectably and achieve felony with credit. We have been astounded and amazed at the vile tricks and shameless devices to which men of eminence have condescended. I wish I could talk like that for you this morning. 
That's beautiful, isn't it? How did they talk like that? You're stuck with me, and I'm, you know, just Midwest kind of talker. That guy could talk. But here's the point. Whenever people are involved in anything, we can expect to discover all manner of fraud and scam and corruption and selfishness and greed and deceit. And what we're going through right now, the Bernie Madoffs and uh, the oil speculators and uh, the Rai Blagojevich stuff, it's just the latest. It's always this way. Why? Because we are sinners. And it may look pristine. It may look up and up. But at the core of it, there are fallen people. And lo and behold, we discover that there has been fallen activity What has been most difficult about this recession is the loss of jobs. And there are some of you here today who, as I say that, are like, yep, because you have lost a job. In fact, the the statistics that I I have, and I I think that um, these are fairly current, job loss somewhere around 5.1 million, maybe higher than that now. Uh, This number just came out on Friday. Indiana unemployment is at 10%. And Lake County is at 10.7%. So there are a lot of people that are looking for a job. There are some of you that have lost a job. In fact, I would say if you are hiring, if you're an employer and you're hiring, come talk to us. We'd love to fill the job with a Bethelonian, okay? We'll just be a little, uh, was it monsters.com? Is that right? Monsters? Isn't that the name of the job search thing? It's a strange name for a job search thing. Isn't it? Monsters.com? Monster? Okay, thank you. That is a strange name. If you want to hire a monster, go to monster.com. I mean, it just simply makes sense. Anyway, uh... So somewhere around 10% of our county is searching. Searching for what? Now we're on to a more important question, aren't we? What are they actually searching for? And on the surface we would say, well, they're obviously looking for a job. But is it really a job that people want? Most people would say, what I want a job for is I want the income that the job provides. But is it really the income that people really want? And I would suggest that perhaps the answer to that is no. You can look at people that suddenly inherit a fortune or they win the lottery or something like that. Oftentimes, what is the very first thing that they do? They quit their job. Because it wasn't the job that they were looking for and it wasn't necessarily the income that they were looking for. At the core of what we really want is we want security. And we want the security that we believe the job income money will provide to us. But this crisis has shown us that this is a precarious pursuit, right? We think, well, if we got money in the bank and we got a job, then everything's good. I can feel inwardly peaceful and I can have assurance that everything's going to be fine for me and my family in the future. But wait a second, maybe that is not exactly Uh, the case because future security is a tough commodity to come upon it's hard it's hard to buy peace there are many stores that are selling contentment 
right? So we might think, well, okay, I got a job. I got money in the bank. But uh, Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme sort of shows that that's not necessarily secure. And Bear Stern went bankrupt, so that shows that the banks aren't necessarily secure. And you might sit here and say, well, at least we always have the stock market, of course. And, well, that's down 43%. And so then you say, well, I always have my house. No, you don't, right? The house isn't so safe anymore. One man commented that during recession, there are three things that rise. Church attendance, bar attendance, and movie attendance. And the reason those three things do is that they represent the three things that people want. They want meaning, connection, and relief. And this is why, into this anxiety-filled world, especially that we're in right now, Christianity needs to crank up the volume and to speak what we've always said. Okay, Nothing changes in the Christian message, but the way that people are listening changes, especially when it has something to do with money. Jesus said it this way, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now why? Why is it harder for them than for a poor man? Because rich people aren't listening. They think that they've got what they need. There is no other additional thing that their life needs, but then they lose their money and now they're interested. Where do I go for that sense of peace regarding the future? And this is where Christianity speaks so powerfully and so effectively if people will listen. And you might be here today, and maybe you've come. I met one lady who said, I came because of this message today. And if that's you today, we thank you for being here. And I would would just uh, exhort you to listen carefully. Listen like you have never listened before. Listen out of your pain. Listen out of your anxiety listen to what God's word has to say and you will find a message of peace and hope for this life and the next that people for thousands of years have clung to and have found what you're looking for. So as we come to this now, let's talk about, I'm just saying truths for troubled times. Truths for troubled times. Here's the first. Life is hard and uncertain because of the fall. Life is hard and uncertain because of the fall. We could ask the question, where does all of this pain come from? Where does all of this fear come from? Why do I have anxiety inside of me? And the Bible has an answer for that. And the answer that the Bible gives is that there once was a time when this was not a part of our experience. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had a good gig going. There they were. The garden provided all of their needs every day. And God promised that it always would. Imagine that. You wake up in the morning, and there's Adam. He's like, oh, what's for breakfast today? And Eve's like, I don't know. Let's go find out. And they walk outside, and here's the garden, and there's everything that they need. They eat up. They have a great, everything's good. Lunchtime. I'm getting a little hungry. What's for lunch? They're like, I don't know, let's go find out. And they walk out in the garden, and here's just all of this wonderful food to eat. They eat lunch. 
the afternoon, they're not worrying about what dinner is or the next breakfast or food on the table three weeks from then. There's no fear. There is no anxiety whatsoever. God was through the garden meeting all of their needs and promised that he always would. So the future was really bright for Adam and Eve. There was, there was, they weren't checking the stock market. They weren't worried about what was going down or what was going up. They didn't calculate their value of their garden compared to other people's garden around them. They weren't watching any of that. They could, there was no anxiety whatsoever. They had a good gig going. But then God put one condition, by the way, on this gig going well. They were not allowed to eat of the tree of good and evil. That was the only condition. And if you know the story, Genesis 3, that's exactly what they did. Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. And now enters into the human experience for the very first time what we're talking about in this series. Trouble, fear, worry, wondering. And this all comes now from what is known as the curse. God judges Adam and Eve for their sin. And by the way, Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, that's us. He judges them, and he says in Genesis 3.17 this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice what happens. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. From this point on, every day of the human experience is marked by trouble. Trouble of all kinds. Difficulty. The ground was cursed, now meaning that coming by food would require effort. It didn't just naturally provide it, you would have to work for it. By the sweat of your brow, you will provide for the basic necessities that life requires. Oh, and by the way, there are things that are going to get in the way. Thorns and thistles will also be your experience. And by the way, what do you notice about thorns and thistles? They hurt, don't they? They hurt. I've got some plants behind my house. I've got a little, I don't know, it's just kind of a area where I've not done anything. <laughs> and uh, there's all these gnarly uh, plants and some of those plants with the barbs on them, you know. And so sometimes I'll kind of go walking through there. And, man, those things, if they get you right, they draw blood. They hurt. Thorns hurt. Thistles Hurt. And God said, from now on, your experience is going to include something that it is not included up to this point. It's going to include pain. Pain. Because of sin. Catastrophe was a real possibility. Starvation now was a fear. So, all of this enters into the experience, and then the big one is, you are going to die. Talk about fearful. There's a big, there's a big fear. As well. So in the story, it is sin that permanently changes everything and brings into this world all of the things that you and I worry about and struggle with and the pains of life come from Genesis 3. It used to be easy. 
It's hard now. Crops used to be certain. They're uncertain now. We used to relish living forever, and we would have, but now we won't. So all our days are thorns and thistles, including this day that we're in today. It changed everything. Now, these thorns and thistles explain recessions and depressions and inflation and stagflation and disease and cancer and poverty and social injustice and all the other things that you might add to the list that we look at and say, that ain't the way it's supposed to be. Thorns and thistles. That's the world that we live in. And here's the thing about it is we can't fix it. We can try to fix it. We can build a big bank account. We can insulate ourselves with great doctors. We can, we can uh, create some society that we think is just wonderful, but we cannot fix it. Mankind tries. The worldview, the secular worldview will suggest things like uh, socialism, which says that government can provide for what we need. Or capitalism, which says that consumers will provide what we need. Or communism, which says that we just all getting together provide what we need. But all of these isms that we come up with have now through history been shown to be insufficient, including the one that we're in right now. It is not perfect. Or we wouldn't have the pain that we have today and the trouble that we're dealing with. In fact, just think about this. How impressed we are with all of our advancements and all the things that we can do. Think about the financial markets, for example. If you ever watch uh, CNBC or Fox Business or some station like that, and you see all the pundits on there, they seem so smart, don't they? I mean, they're, oh, well, we see that the interest rates are... And uh, then some other guy says, well, you know, the underlying, uh, the underlying uh, truths in this uh, economy indicate to me, and they quote some of this in big words and all this techno. And on the bottom, there's all these track things going across with all the stock markets, and there's charts going up and down and projections, and there's economists that teach in universities all over this country who are so smart, and we've got all of this technological wizardry that's supposed to, to make sure that nothing bad ever happens. And in spite of all of our amazing accomplishments, guess what? This still happened, didn't it? We cannot escape Genesis 3. It is thorns and thistles all of life. So in a sinful garden like we're in now, this is the way that it is. And this is where it comes from. Right here. So that's a truth for troubled time. We've got to understand why, where this pain comes from. It comes from really our sin and the reality of a sinful world that we live in. Second truth for troubled time. God is sovereign over recessions too. God is sovereign over recessions too. God brings the thorns and thistles, but he rules over them. Or as Brant just got done singing, he reigns over them. For example, the Bible says this, Lamentations 3, Who has spoken and it, comes, and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad... I skipped something. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Daniel 4, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Last night I was just reading a little bit in the Psalms to get ready for the service last night, and I, I read, and I forget the Psalm right now, 100 and something. It's confusing with the Psalms, isn't it, to remember exactly where it was, because there's so many of them. But it was Psalm 100 and something, and it just, it, this was like my little takeaway from, from my, uh, my little devotional time there. It just said this, God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. It's like the lion. You know where a lion lays down? Anywhere he wants to. That's right. God does whatever he wants. He rules and he reigns in this world. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. You see that? All things together according to the counsel of his will. This is the sovereignty of God, that he is ruling and reigning and exercising absolute power over everything. Sovereignty of God, which we love that truth, don't we, when things are going good. God's in control, my life is blessed, good things are happening, I feel his pleasure, it's good. We love the sovereignty of God when things are going good. However, when things go bad, now we have a different theology, don't we? Wait a second. A sovereign God has clearly made a mistake. There's something wrong here. Like the golfer, and I've seen this many times, the golfer who uh, soaks in the adulation when he makes a good shot and blames God with profanity when he makes a bad one. We don't mind the good shot experiences of life, but when something bad happens, we're very quick to say, God, you've done something wrong. You've made a mistake. This isn't the way that it should be. And we come, and we'll talk about this probably more next week, we come to question whether or not he's a good God. Because how could a good God bring this into my life? And I think of in this room right now, I know there's, I can think of a family, I could look at them right now, I could point to them, who... I mean, they got like a thousand kids and he's laid off and they are by faith trying to wrestle with this time in their life and how easy it would be in the uncertainty of that and wanting to provide for your family to wonder if God is actually good or sovereign or trustworthy. But the Bible says that he is all of those things and he is sovereign over the recessions as well. Now, how God exercises his sovereignty is fascinating, and we could spend a lot of time on this. We'll spend a little bit of time on this. It's fascinating because, obviously, we can't see God. We can't see God. I've never seen God's hand, like, directly. And the way that God exercises his sovereignty in this world is through secondary causes. Okay? Through secondary causes. We look at the secondary cause and think that it's the first cause. So that you might watch the Discovery Channel, for example, and this is maddening to me when I see this, uh, but I watch all the same, is, you know, they'll, they'll be talking about something, it's a science program or whatever, and they'll be talking about some aspect of the world, the universe, whatever, and they'll say, and look at Mother Nature's brilliance, you know, and it's, you know, some wing on some bird that is inverted so that it can fly in circles or whatever it is, you know, something like that, and and they're like, Mother Nature is so brilliant, you know, look at this. And, and you know, uh, natural selection or whatever else they might apply it to. These are things 
These are ways that God exercises his control. We look at it as a first cause, but biblically it is a secondary thing. He is behind the thing that we can see. We can't see him, but he is, he is exercising his control over everything. And when this is applied then to history and the drama of nations and the drama of societies and in my life, there's a different word that we use to describe it. It's the word providence. Providence. Say that word with me. It's a good word just to have in the, in the, in the vocabulary. This is what providence is, as J.I. Packer defines it. The unceasing activity of the Creator whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. God is the sovereign one. He is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, exercises his rule and reign in what we call life and history and biography and story in a way where he is orchestrating all the circumstances of my life and your life and the life of this church and the life of this community and this state and the Midwest and this nation and this world. All of it is under his control directly and he is pursuing with all of this a goal. He is doing something. This is Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works together for the good. He is, he is, he's, everything is doing that. And what's not in everything? Nothing. (laughs) That was not a trick question. Just poorly said, probably. There's nothing that's a part of that. So that I can rest in the fact that everything that happens in my life, God is at work in it. He is doing something in it. And that includes recessions. That includes losing my job. That includes health issues. Recessions are more than just economic. There are recessions that we go deal with in lots of categories. My marriage is in recession. My family is in recession. My... my uh, As I said before, my health is in recession. My emotional state is in recession. We have things that are downturning all the time in our life. But God is at work in all of them. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. Jesus said this, his eye is on even the sparrows. What's a sparrow? It's like this big, right? But he's watching the sparrows. He knows when they fall to the ground. And Jesus' point is this. If his eye is on the sparrow, you can know that he watches you. So finding faith in troubled times requires believing that God is at work in the midst of our troubles. And applying that truth to the pain that the troubled time is creating in other words we bring god into it actually we don't bring god into it we realize that he is in it better said that way and this is then helpful so god is sovereign over recessions too all of the different kinds that we experience in our life third truth for troubled times recessions reveal where our hopes truly 
lie. Recessions reveal where our hopes, the hopes of our hearts, truly lie. Now, let me give you another example of this. Do you remember Y2K? There's some children here right now going, Mommy, what's Y2K? She's like, I don't remember what it stands for. Okay, Y was year, two was two, and K was a thousand. So this was Y2K was the little thing that they came up with. I don't know who came up with that, but somebody came up with that. And this is what happened, in case you were on some other planet. What happened was that when in 1999, there were all these uh, alarming reports going out saying that the computers were not programmed to deal with the year 2000. They were only able to deal with one something. And so there was all this speculation that the computers that control the waterways and the electrical grid and, you know, your toaster and all this other stuff, that it, was, it wasn't going to work anymore. And so there was really a lot of anxiety. This was a big deal, wasn't it, back, at, back in the day? And so people were doing all kinds of things in response to the threat. And there were, you know, some people, they stocked up on food in their basement. Other people did things. I have, I have, I know people... Uh, from Indianapolis, very educated and accomplished people. She's a lawyer. He's a doctor. They sold everything. They bought a mountain out west, and they moved there. And I don't know if they built a ranch or there was a ranch at the top of this mountain. And they went there and they went into survival mode. They were like, "We will survive this," and that's what they did. Well, as you know, nothing happened. But. How we responded to the threat said a lot about where our confidence lied and who we were trusting in. And that's what recessions do. They show, they show where our, like if we get down to our hearts and the roots of our hearts and where we, where our identity is and where our hopes are, trouble reveals that like nothing else. Where the chips are down, the real us comes out. Have you noticed this? Sometimes something happens and you get under stress and you get, and then, and, and then something happens and we look back at it and we say, well, that wasn't me. I don't know who that was. I don't know who that was that said that, but that was not me. Actually, actually it was. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And in the midst of trouble, it's like, it's like taking the, you know, it sort of stirs it up and all that sediment, that bad sediment bad character stuff at the bottom gets suddenly all out in the open now and we see ourselves for who we really are and this to me is why it's so helpful trouble is helpful and it doesn't matter what kind of trouble we're talking about money trouble is helpful marital trouble is helpful relational trouble is helpful troubles and struggles in a church are helpful because they get things out on the table that otherwise are masked over and aren't seen and that's what god does in trials that's why he brings them to us is because he wants to uh, form us into the likeness of jesus christ and for those things that are keeping us from that to get out in the open he has to bring pressure and he has to bring trouble and he has to bring things that we otherwise would be worried about and fearful about so that we can see the things that need to be dealt with and deal with them. First Peter 1, 6 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we are living in troubled times. We live in a fallen world where bad things happen. We can ask questions of why they're happening, but here is the core one. So that we can deal with things that are there in our hearts. I'd like you to think for a moment right now. Think about a major trial that you went through in your life. Think about it. Okay, right now all our minds are going back. Some of you maybe are in the midst of it right now. Think about that trial. Think about how you responded in the midst of the trial. What words came out of your mouth? What attitudes were on display? Who did you go to for counsel? Where did you turn for help? What became important to you in the midst of the trial? Like, how important was money in whatever you're coming to your mind? How important was your reputation in whatever is coming to your mind? Right now you're going, oh. Right? We all can look at things and go, oh. But that's what trials do. They, t- they, they, they take away the props. They take away the mask. Even the way that we want to see ourselves. And they reveal the inner workings of our hearts. There we are. We're just naked in a trial. Okay? The real us is just right out there in the open. And that's why they're helpful. Jesus gave an illustration uh, similar to this in his Sermon on the Mount. And he told the story of two home builders. Okay? Now, if you're a home builder, this is a rough time for you. So, But here's a story for you. Okay? Two home builders. The one guy built this beautiful home. Okay, great curb appeal, decorated wonderfully. From the outside, everything looked great. But Jesus adds this little detail. He said, he built his house on sand. But then there was this other guy that also built a house. And it all it looked good, all that. But the main difference, though, is this guy built his house on rock. Now, Jesus says, here's what happened. And, and this is how the... The children's song says it. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the rains came down and the floods came up. And the rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand fell flat. That's right. Just like that. But the house on the rock stood firm. Oh, those kids, they need to get that, don't they? Oh, wait a second. There's a deeper truth here, isn't there? And what did, what did it take to discover which house was on sand and which house was on the rock? It was trouble. The rains came down and the floods came up. Trouble came into the experience. And it's a metaphor for the heart of man and where our faith is and what we're trusting in. And in the midst of a trial, we get to see what we're trusting in. And we get to see the futility of some things that we think are where it's all at. And that's why you, you, you can watch this in people's lives. Some people, the rains come down and the floods come up and their lives collapse. Their marriages collapse. Their families collapse. 
emotionally, they collapse. And then there are other people that the rains come down, the floods come up, the rains come down, the floods come up, and their house stands firm. And it's like they've got a reservoir of something that the people on the sand don't have. And that rock is the truth. And the truth is found primarily in Christ. Now, in saying that, I don't want to in any way insinuate that people who have faith on the rock don't struggle. And that there are not times of great sorrow and tears. Jesus himself wept huge tears, at least in two different times, we know. So it's not like if you have faith and you just sort of float along in a stoic sort of way. We're not extenuating that all. But in terms of the persevering ability in the midst of the storm, the person who's built upon their faith truly is upon Christ and in God's word and in God's work in their life, there is a resiliency Who do we trust? What do we care about? Where our hopes lie? These things that we go through, they feel to us like the worst times in our life, don't they? Like if you're thinking, whatever you're thinking about right now, I say think about a trial in your life, you probably went to like number one you've ever gone through, or maybe the one that you're in right now. And we look at those times and we think those are, those were the worst days of my life. The Bible would appeal to us to look at those actually, spiritually, as the best days. The days when our faith was activated in the midst of a trial in a way that we never had seen before. I love the line in the the movie Apollo 13. And uh, if you know the story, this capsule is, you know, they went around the moon and so there was damage and so NASA's trying to get them back and you don't know if they're going to make it back or not. And and uh, so in the scene when they're really going to, you know, they're about to make re-entry, one of the guys in the ground crew says to uh, the flight leader, a guy who's played by Ed Harris, this other guy says to him, we need to prepare. This could be the worst disaster in Nassau's history. And Ed Harris, very dignified, snaps back at him and says, with all due respect, sir, I believe this will be our finest hour. Two different ways of looking at it, Right? It is either the worst disaster that I have ever been through or my finest hour. In in spite of the pain and in spite of the sorrow, and none of us pray for recessions to come into our life, but here's what we can know in the midst of them, that God is at work and my faith is growing and my, my hope is building and my confidence in God's ability to meet my needs, I am realizing in a way that I never would otherwise. And so God brings these trials and these troubles and these things that we look at as bad for our good. And that's why James says, count it all joy when you fall into them. Because you know that that trial is developing in you something that your faith needs desperately. What? Perseverance. Perseverance. And you might be here right now. In fact, I know this. In this room, we got people, you're going through terrible trials in your life. And right now, you're like, I wish this would go away. I can't believe this is happening. I, I hate it. My dear friend, I would say to you, this is not a sign that God hates you or he doesn't like you. This means that he loves you. 
And he loves you enough to bring you through a trial in a way that on the other side you look more like his son, who, by the way, he took through a pretty big trial. All the sons that he loves have crosses to bear. Hebrews would suggest that if we have no crosses and no discipline in our life, that we are spiritually illegitimate. Now, this is why the Christian faith is so beautiful in troubled times like we're in right now. The world that we live in and the people that you might live next to and work with, when the economy is going like this, or when their personal lives are going like this, they don't have anywhere to turn, really. Where do you go? What do you do? All the props that you thought were going to provide hope are gone. The Christian response to that is this. God is never in recession. God is never in recession. He has never experienced a downturn. And since faith is grounded in the person of God, my faith transcends the circumstances which are all the time going up and down in my life. And I can, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the confidence of things not seen. My faith grabs on to a God who is not bound by the frivolities of this world and it stands resilient because my hope is in Him. You see how that works? I don't know if I did that very well. Let me do it again. God is never in recession. I may be in recessions. I'm in recessions all the time. my, My feelings, my bank accounts, my family, my relationships trust me, are all the time like this. And so there I am bobbing like this in the ocean. And then, actually, it's kind of like, in a way, it comes to my mind right now. Can you imagine being that captain in that little uh, life raft where the pirates have got you in? And then the USS Destroyer pulls up next to you. You know, you're in the boat going like this. And here it comes. That was a moment (laughs) when that boat pole showed up. I don't know if that helps or not, but it just comes to my mind. (laughs) Do you see, though? That's the thing. The captain's like, uh, you know, he's looking at he's looking at the howitzers and he's looking at the you know missiles and all the all the guns pointing out on the on the destroyer and looks at the little guys with their guns pointed at him. He's like, you guys are in serious trouble. (laughs) Why? Because look who's here, right? Look who's here. And the Christian, by faith, is like, look who's here. My God, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, he says. He's here with me in the midst of this. And my faith apprehends that, appropriates it, and believes it. And that's how I weather the troubled times. And that's how I get through the storms of life. It's faith in God. And the reason that we can have this is what we celebrated last week. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross conquering sin and his resurrection conquering death is not simply a religious holiday. It is a truth that in the storms of life becomes so very precious. And of course, ultimately, remember in the garden, you are going to die. The big fear that we have is what happens on the other side of the grave. And to this, Christianity speaks so 
eloquently and says, listen, Jesus has conquered the grave. He has reversed the curse, essentially, in doing that. Now, on the other side of the, of the grave, other side of the resurrection, for the unbeliever, all the happinesses of this world are temporary and death is eternal. But for those who have faith in Christ now, saved by faith, sins forgiven, all the troubles in this life are temporary and life is eternal. It is totally reversed for us. And Christ has done it. Amen. Not sure I can say it any better than that. Question is, are you listening? Are we listening? And that's halftime.